0: Of what they think you're like, but I've heard the tender whisper of love in the dead of night, and you tell me that you're. You are perfect in all of your ways. You're perfect in all of your ways to us. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's
1: who I am. God, thanks for the words of that song. Lord, thanks for your heart for us. God, thank you that we can have this relationship with you. Thank you for this love, acceptance, for allowing us to be a part of your family. Be glorified here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.
2: Morning. Happy Father's Day. Uh, <laughs> we aren't going to have a sermon specifically for Father's Day. We're going to continue in our series on apologetics. But we just want to say we are so proud of so many of you guys here that I know just do a great job of being dads. So thank you. It's just a good deal. Can we give them a little applause? Yeah. That is a a special, that's a special deal, especially in our day and age. Um, But even then, I think it's always important to kind of think through, what does it look like to grow as fathers? You know, what are some ways we can be better dads? And I I kept having this, uh, this term, this idea come in my mind. It's engaging presence with your children. Engaging presence with your children. It really starts with just being there. Uh, it matters. Now, there's these four 10 year olds and they're at a school event and they began to talk about their dads. And the first one says, well, my dad's a doctor and he heals people and he helps them to feel better. And then the second turns over and goes, well, my dad's a teacher. And he teaches people how to read and write and to learn things. And the third little boy says, well, mine's a lawyer. He helps people out of trouble and get some money, and then finally the fourth little boy turns to the other three and he goes, my dad's here today. Well, that's pretty significant, isn't it? You see, I think that presence we have matters so much. I got a birthday card from my daughter years ago, and actually, the outside of the card says so much, and there's so much in the inside also. It says, as I was thinking about you today, I began to wonder whether you realize how much you are part of me. You might not know how deeply your values and your actions have influenced my character, or be aware of how many your words still speak to my heart. But Dad, as sure as the sun causes the budding flower to blossom, you have shaped and influenced my life. Your very presence has made me who I am today, a daughter who loves you very much. There are some personal words that just kind of spoke to that. It said, Dad, I, I couldn't have said it any better than this card. You are one of my favorite people in this entire world. I'm so blessed to have such a wonderful dad like you. I love that we both love sports and watching sports together. I enjoy every minute that we get to spend together, every road trip, every coffee date, everything. I can't say it enough, but I love you so much, and I'm so thankful you are so involved in my life. I can't wait to still be around for another year. Um, And when you think about it, it's like it's involvement. It's taken time, but it's not just presence. It's really engaging in conversation. There was a study that was done years ago and it just struck me. It just was like a so difficult to hear but it was a study, a psych- psychology study and it said that they had spent 37 seconds a day engaging with their children. Only 37 seconds See, it's not just how is your day going, it's talking about how, do, how are you? What's going on in your life? What are the questions of your struggles and knowing your children? It takes time, it takes intentionality, and it matters, it really matters. There was a letter that was written to a dad from someone I know very well. And listen to what it says. It says, Dad, Merry Christmas. I just wanted to remind you how much I love you. Over the past 18 years, you have taught me so much about who Christ and how incredible it is to live for him. Not only have you told me about it, but you went so far to live it out yourself. I am who I am today because of you. Thank you so much for always loving me. I know at times it must seem impossible, but I know in my heart that no matter what, you'll always love me unconditionally and you will never leave me alone. You're a wonderful dad, and I know you always say that you only love me a little bit compared to Jesus, so I don't even know where to begin imagining how much he loves me. Thank you also for always listening to me I know that I have such petty problems, but you always listen to me for hours and give me honest advice. I know wherever, whenever I ask you something, you will not just tell me what I want to hear. You put me back into reality. Also, you are always there to listen to me about all the new things I'm learning about Christ and who God is. I know it is old news for you, but you let me be excited. Overall, thank you for being such a wonderful man of God. I honestly see a reflection of Christ when I see you. And I love you more than words can say. Engaging presence, boy, it matters, doesn't it? it? really does. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for being our Father in heaven. For many of us, we didn't have that daily dad around, or if he was, it wasn't the kind of dad that you would have wanted him to be. We're so grateful, God. I just see in this community so many good dads, so many young guys just trying to do it right. And I just pray your blessing and your favor over them. And Holy Spirit, we would just ask today that you would speak through Sean. Thank you for just the gifting you've given Sean as we think about the truths that matter in our lives, the questions that we have and i just ask god that not only in this day but in the days they had you just would bless him with insights uh just that we would know more about our faith more about the truth because we know that faith comes from hearing and hearing your word and so we ask for your help and holy spirit we invite you to speak to us today because it's it's our heart's desire to just be more like jesus and we need help it is so easy to be selfish it's so easy to do our own thing but with you involved great things happen and so we just ask for your blessing on this time lord be worshiped by what we hear and how we respond in jesus name amen
3: all right good morning everyone Great to see you all here this morning. Welcome to everyone here. Happy Father's Day. Thank you for those words. Gus, I appreciate your thoughts on fatherhood, especially from someone who I know is such a good dad and such a father figure for our church. So I'm grateful for that. We are going to continue our series on apologetics this morning. And. Um, last week, we introduced this topic of apologetics and talked about you know, what it is and why it's important to be just a little bit more apologetically minded. You, know, you don't have to have a PhD in this stuff, but just having a little bit more understanding can be really helpful and really beneficial for a number of reasons. But apologetics, at its basic form, is basically just defending our faith. Being able to answer some of those tough questions that come up about our faith. And believe me, there's not just tough questions about the Christian faith. I mean, every world religion, every religious view has to deal with difficult questions, has to deal with the big questions of life. And I believe that Christianity deals with those questions better than any other worldview out there. And it's important to be able to understand these things for several reasons. One is that it strengthens our faith. Okay, we talked about all these last week, but just for a quick review. It strengthens our faith. We all have doubts. We all have questions that come up from time to time. You might have never read the book of Joshua and the book of Judges, and all of a sudden you're reading this going, oh, I did not know this was in the Bible. And we're going to deal with some of those things later in the summer. Okay? But we have doubts. We have questions. We just can't leave them lying there. We have to deal with them. Secondly, it helps those around us that believe. It it, it provides encouragement. If our faith is stronger, we can strengthen the faith of those around us. We can help people when they're dealing with tough times and we can help them resolve their doubts and questions as well. Thirdly, it helps us to be more effective in sharing our faith with those around us. We just spent the last five or six months talking about having a heart for the lost and evangelism, what it means to share your faith. You know, telling them about God's story, learning about their story, telling them your story, connecting those stories together. Well, in those conversations, tough questions oftentimes come up. And I told you the story last week of how I came to faith in my early 20s after struggling with a lot of these questions. And how somebody invested in me and answered those questions with gentleness and respect. And then fourth, having a bit more understanding of apologetics can make us more effective in the public square. It can make us more effective in these public discussions about faith that are becoming more and more prevalent. Just being more knowledgeable about what you believe. Now this morning, we're going to deal with the first tough question of the summer. I told you last week we're going to go through nine or 10 questions this summer, and this is the first one we're going to deal with. Is the Bible reliable and true? In other words, can we really trust it? I mean, we say that the Bible is an authority in our lives. Well, why do we say that? Why do we believe that? Why do we put our faith in the Bible? In our increasingly secular culture, the Bible is under attack. And you've probably heard a lot of questions about the Bible, and you may have even asked some of these questions yourself. Is the Bible still even relevant for our day and age? I mean, it's 2,000 years old. How can we trust something that's that old and has been copied and translated so many times? Isn't it just another book written by human beings? I mean, how do you really know it came from God? And as we go into this topic, I want you to think about this scenario. Put yourself in the midst of this scenario. You're thinking about starting a Bible study in your neighborhood, and you approach the next-door neighbor about their interest, their response is, no thanks, I don't really believe in the Bible. It's just a book written by men. I mean, you don't really think it came from God, do you? How would you respond to that question? Well, I was confronted by this exact question by a neighbor about 10 or 12 years ago. And honestly, I didn't respond very well. I was kind of stung by that question. I was kind of thrown back on my heels a little bit. I mean, if you've had a similar experience, you know the feeling I'm talking about. You know, I had kind of stepped out of my comfort zone to invite him to this Bible study I was considering doing because I knew he wasn't a Christian. And when he hit me with that question and that statement and just kind of stopped me in my tracks, I was not prepared to deal with it. And it was shortly after that that I really intentionally started digging into apologetics because that was a formative moment for me. I realized I was not prepared to deal with some of these tough questions. I had been a believer for probably 20 plus years, and I hadn't prepared myself or hadn't been prepared to deal with those kind of questions. So these things do come up in real life if you're out there, if you're sharing your faith, if you're inviting people to church, if you're talking about things that are important to you in your faith, these kind of questions will come up. And so we're gonna talk about this particular question this morning. Now, first of all, why is it important that we trust the Bible? Well, the main reason is that the Bible is the basis For our faith. And and if the Bible is not reliable, and if the Bible is not true, or we can't really we feel like we can't trust it, then what do we base our beliefs on? Now we're starting with this question because I believe it's foundational to all the others. I mean you look at ten different apologetics books out there, and they'll all have a different, they'll all have a lot of the same questions, but they'll all have a different order in how they approach them. I choose to come at it first and foremost from the Bible because I think the Bible is the source for our faith. This is the source of truth. And a lot of the questions that we ask can be answered out of the Bible. So I think it's important to start there. Now, there are a number of different lines of evidence that you can use when you're responding to this type of question. And like a good trial attorney, you need to be prepared with multiple exhibits to get your case across. You don't have to have all of them. But I'll also tell you that there is no one single bulletproof answer to this question or to any of these questions about apologetics. There's no silver bullet out there. You have to have a good understanding of different ways to approach it. Now, we don't have time this morning to deal with all the different types of evidence that support the reliability of the Bible, but we are going to hit four key areas. First, the internal claims about the Bible. In other words, what does the Bible say about itself? Second, we're going to look at some manuscript evidence, some actual physical evidence. Third, we're going to talk about predictive prophecy and how that helps us to to trust that the Bible is from God and is inspired and then fourth, the coherence and unity of the Bible. So first off let's talk about some of the internal claims of the Bible. Now the Bible is an important book. Okay? It has changed millions if not billions of lives through history. It has been in existence for over 2000 years. It is the best-selling, most widely distributed book in history. It was actually the first book printed mechanically. When the Gutenberg Press was printed, the first book they printed on the printing press was a Bible. And it's been published in over 2,000 languages and counting. That number continues to grow. And the Bible makes some pretty strong claims about itself. For instance, in Psalm 19, David writes about the character of God's word. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant. Giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. So that's Psalm 19. Psalm 119, 119 is another one that's fascinating. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. It's 176 verses long. And every single verse except for one or two mention the word of God. It is this amazing psalm of praise about the word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and active. Yeah, it's 2,000 years old, but it's still alive and active. It is the living word of God, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes about the origins of Scripture. It kind of gives us some clues. There's a number of Scriptures that deal with this. This is just a highlight. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then in 2 Timothy, probably the most familiar scripture about scripture, Paul writes about its inspiration and its purpose. It says, all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So these are just some representative samples. There, There are dozens more about how the Bible talks about itself. So again, the Bible makes some strong, pretty unambiguous claims about itself. But what's the question you're going to get there? Some will come back to you and say, what the Bible says about itself is irrelevant. And that using the Bible to give evidence for the reliability of the Bible is circular reasoning. And honestly, they have a point. From a logic standpoint, there is a point there. See, as a follower of Christ who who believes in the authority and inspiration of Scripture, I believe what the Bible says about itself. I take it as biblical. It is Bible. It is Bible truth. So I believe what it says. But for someone who's questioning the validity of the Bible, someone who comes to you and asks those kind of questions, they're going to need more objective proof. They're not going to believe what the Bible says about itself because they don't trust the Bible yet. That's what I mean by circular reasoning. Now, fortunately, there is plenty of objective non biblical or outside of the Bible evidence for the reliability of the Bible. So let's first look at some manuscript evidence. Now, one of the criticisms that is frequently leveled against the Bible is that it has been copied over and over and over and over again for years. And surely, with all of that copying, it can't be accurate anymore, can it? I mean, really? But the manuscript evidence that we have for the Bible says otherwise. In fact, it has been shown t- that the Bible we have today is incredibly accurate to the original, up to 99%. <sighs> accurate. Now, when I refer to manuscripts, I'm referring to actual physical copies of the Bible, either complete versions, partial versions or fragments. That's a manuscript, something you can actually physically touch. Now, it is true that we do not have any of the original writings of the Bible. We don't have any of the original writings of, you know, we don't have the original letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. We don't have the original book of Jeremiah. Those things were all written on animal skin and papyrus, which honestly don't do very well over time, especially when exposed to moisture. And then you add to that natural disasters, fire, war, rebellion, theft, intentional destruction. We don't have any of the original manuscripts. But this is also true of almost every other work of ancient antiquity. We don't have the original copies of Homer's Iliad or Plato's Republic. Yet there are very few questions about the reliability of those works. You don't hear people question those. And actually, the manuscript evidence for the Bible is much stronger than these other pieces of literature. Let me explain. Homer's Iliad is one of the oldest works of literature in existence. It was likely written around 700 BC, someplace a couple hundred years earlier, but most scholars believe around 700 BC. But the earliest copy we have is from at least 400 years later. So in other words, it was written, And the original has been long lost. And the earliest copy we have is 400 years after the original. Plato's Republic was written around 400 B.C. The earliest actual copy, the earliest manuscript we have is from 900 A.D. That's 1,300 years after the fact. Now, almost all biblical scholars believe that the entire New Testament was written before the end of the first century, by the year 95 A.D. So it was actually written, all of it, within 60 years of Jesus dying. Okay, it's much of it, some of it much earlier than that. The earliest complete copies of the New Testament are dated within 225 years of the original text. Okay, so that's much better than the ones above. The earliest copies of specific portions of the New Testament, so let's say a specific book, like the book of James, for example, are dated within 100 years of the original. And we have fragments that are dated within 50 years. There is a fragment from the book of John that is dated 29 years after the original writing. That is almost unheard of in the study of ancient literature. Okay, So the message is there is that the copies we have are much, much closer to the original writing than a lot of these other ancient documents that we study and revere in some ways. And there's very few people, like I said, that deny the reliability and authenticity of these writings by Homer or Plato. Yet when it comes to the Bible, skeptics immediately say, well, how can you trust that? Furthermore, there are over 24,000 manuscripts of the New Testament, either partial copies or complete copies for for the Iliad and, and the Republic. 643 copies for the Iliad and seven for Plato's Republic in existence. And while literary scholars place the accuracy of these other works by Homer and Plato at about 95%, biblical scholars place the accuracy of the New Testament between 96 and 99% accurate to the original. And what's so important about these number of manuscripts is that they can be studied in detail. Judaism and Christianity have been really, really, really good and really intentional and really disciplined about keeping all of these manuscripts for study, for perusal, for comparison. And by examining all of these various manuscripts and comparing them to one another, it can be be determined with a high level of confidence what the original document said. So what they do is they take, they take all these manuscripts and they compare them from different centuries, from the first century, the second century, the third century, et cetera. They have all these copies, they compare them side by side. And, and what you'll find when you compare these manuscripts, Old Testament and New Testament, is what's called variance. There are differences. Okay, even with all of the discipline that these scribes had, there were some minor variants that crept into the text. Someone spelled a name differently. Someone transposed two words. Someone left out a word. But there was intentionality and there were, there were rules in place that, that minimized those things. And none of those variants affect any single major belief or theology. Okay? They're all just typographical errors, if that. Okay? But because we have all these manuscripts, we can compare them side by side, trace them back, to the one that came before, kind of the parent document and then the grandparent document. And we can determine to within 99% accuracy what the original said. That's called textual criticism. And it's incredibly important in this argument. So the manuscript evidence says that we can trust that what we have today is true and accurate to the original writings, in spite of the number of times that it's been copied. Okay, so we've got something that's accurate to the original. Okay, the next question that's going to come up. Well, how do you know that what the, the original was from God? H- how do you know that the original was true? Okay, so what? So you've got a great copy of something that was written, again, by human beings, and how do you, how do you know that it's true? Well, one of the ways we do that is through the area of predictive prophecy. The Bible is the only book in the world that has precise, specific predictions made hundreds of years in advance that were literally fulfilled at a later time. There are hundreds and hundreds of prophecies that have been fulfilled. And there are numerous prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming of a Messiah. According to the Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy, The Old Testament contains 191 specific predictions about the coming of Christ. Specific, verifiable predictions. For example, the book of Micah predicts that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, of ancient times. Isaiah 53, and I know you're not going to be able to read this. Don't worry about it. I don't expect you to be able to read it, and I'm not going to read it to you. But Isaiah 53 predicts that the Messiah would be rejected, would be a man of sorrow, would live a life of suffering, would be despised, would carry our sorrow, would be smitten and afflicted by God, would be pierced for our transgressions, wounded for our sins, suffer like a lamb, die with the wicked, even though he was sinless, and intercede on behalf of those who would kill him. Forgive them, Lord, they know not what they do. Psalm 22 predicts that his bones would be out of joint, that his hands and feet, that the Messiah's hands and feet would be pierced. And this is before crucifixion had even been invented as a form of execution. And that people would cast lots for his clothing. And then Zechariah 12.10 predicts that the Messiah would be pierced. So we have numerous predictions about the Messiah fulfilled historically by the person of Jesus Christ. And these were things over which he had no control. His ancestry, his place and time of birth, the manner of his death. Those weren't things he could manipulate because he was trying to fulfill prophecy. And mathematics has shown that there is virtually no way that these prophecies could have been fulfilled by one person simply by chance. Dr. Peter Stone, a professor of mathematics and astronomy, considered just eight of these major prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. And according to Dr. Stone, the chance that any person might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled all eight prophecies is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That's a 10 with 17 zeros. That's the mathematical probability that that could be done by chance. And that is just eight of the prophecies. Jesus fulfilled dozens, if not hundreds, of prophecies. So the reliability of the Bible is further supported by this literal fulfillment of these predictive prophecies. The Bible is the only book that is supernaturally confirmed this way. Now, we all know humans can't predict the future. People can guess, people could speculate, but we can't predict the future with any sort of accuracy. Only an all-knowing God can do that. So now we're going to take it briefly into the realm of logic. I mentioned last week that apologetics, you know, there's faith-based arguments, there's biblically-based arguments, there's also theological arguments, there's logic arguments, there's philosophical arguments. Well, we're going to use logic now, a logic argument. And when when, when you deal with logic, you usually deal with what's called a premise, so something that is verifiable. And then you build together a number of premises, and then you come up with a conclusion. Okay, So here we have four premises. Number one, humans cannot predict the future. True. Only an all-knowing God can predict the future. True. The Bible predicts things that will happen and did happen in the future. Check. And th- those, those predictions are fulfilled literally. Therefore, conclusion, the Bible has to be from God. That is using a logic argument to prove the inspiration of scripture. Now again, that's just one of many arguments. Again, this is not one that you could just say and boom, everyone in the room's gonna believe. But it's another tool in the toolbox. Now another important line of evidence that supports that the Bible is true and is from God is its coherence and unity. The Bible is made up of 66 books in two major sections, right? The Old Testament and the New Testament. It was written over a 1,500-year period, maybe a little longer. There were about 40 authors involved in the writing of the Bible. Those authors lived on three different continents, Asia, Europe, and Africa, northern Africa. They came from vastly different places, Egypt, Palestine, Babylon, Rome, all over the known world. They came from different backgrounds, different occupations, and they spoke different languages. And they were not knowingly writing scripture. They didn't know they were on the Bible writing team for 1,500 years. They had no idea. They were writing historical accounts. They were writing down the prophecies, the visions that God had given them. They were writing poetry in worship of their God. They were writing The gospel accounts, these historical accounts of this person, Jesus, that they were witnessing firsthand. They were writing letters to the churches talking about what was going on and what Jesus had done. They didn't know they were writing the Bible. Yet despite this diversity, there is this unity and coherence that is undeniable in Scripture. The Bible tells this remarkably cohesive story from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates and says it's good. It's very good. Genesis 3, human beings screw it up. The rest of the Bible, God's working to redeem the mess that we made. He's doing that through Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, the judges, the kings, the prophets, and Jesus Christ, the Messiah himself. There's this incredible thread of redemption and grace and mercy and love all the way through the Bible it's undeniable there is foreshadowing in the Old Testament that is explained clearly in the New Testament there are prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled literally in the New Testament the Old Testament points to the New Testament and the Messiah the New Testament points back to the Old Testament and refers to it constantly there are all these connections there are no contradictions that's a whole another topic There are no contradictions. There are these references and connections and this flow throughout the Bible that simply cannot be explained by coincidence. That's what I mean when I say there is a remarkable unity and coherence in the Bible. Now, the Bible, again, was written by these human authors that we just talked about, right? But there is a distinctive voice to the Bible. There is a voice behind the voices. There is an inspiration behind the writers. There is one heartbeat. There is one being that is pulling all this together through these human authors in their unique situations, with their unique personalities and backgrounds. There is the Holy Spirit inspiring all that behind it and drawing this message together. And for me, this is the strongest argument for the reliability and authenticity of the Bible. It might be different for you. There might be other arguments that are more meaningful to you. But when I heard this one, it just galvanized my belief in this book. And now that I read it with that through that lens, I see it everywhere. There are just incredible connections everywhere. You have this obscure character in Genesis, either Genesis 12 or Genesis 14, Melchizedek. Who's this priest that Abraham worships and gives him a tithe and, and, and Melchizedek blesses him. And then in Psalm 22, Melchizedek comes up again. And this is a thousand years later. This, this idea of being a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And it's a reference to the Messiah. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. It's referring to the Messiah. And then in Hebrews chapter 4 and 5, I believe it is, it ties it all together and says Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Why is that important? Well, Jesus was supposed to be both a priest and a king, right? Well, to be a king, he had to come from the line of David. But where did the priests come from? They came from the line of Levi. So Jesus had to come from a line greater than the line of Levi, a line that came before the line of Levi. Melchizedek came long before Levi, and Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Boom, answers that question. That's what I'm talking about with the coherence of the Bible. So to summarize, you know we've looked at just a few of these lines of evidence. We've talked about the internal claims within the Bible, what it says about itself. What some of the manuscript evidence tells us, and there is so much more we could get into. And then you start getting into the archaeological evidence and all the finds, all the archaeological finds that support the story of the Bible, and none of them refute it or contradict it. Then we talked about predictive prophecy and this remarkable unity and coherence of the biblical narrative, and these points alone make a compelling case. And like I said, there are a number of other really good arguments for this as well so our belief in the bible is not speculative it is not a matter of blind faith don't ever let anyone tell you that you are believing in something by blind faith there are sound rational logical reasonable reasons to believe along with the incredible experience and the relationship that you have it's not all up here it's here too But it's both. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. All of those things tie into that. So what are the implications? How do we respond? First of all, very simply, believe it. It is God's word. It is the source of truth. And there is plenty of evidence that it is something we can put our faith in. Second, if it's reasonable to believe that it's God's word, then we should be reading it. We have this incredible resource from God at our fingertips. He has chosen to reveal himself to us through the Bible. And he's given us a view and insight into his character, his creation, and his desire for our lives and how that all works together. And yet how often we neglect it. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. We need to plant ourselves next to that stream. We need to be in the word. Third, not only do we read it, but we need to do what it says. James chapter 1 says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Be a doer of the word, not just a hearer of the word. Again, God provides all this incredible wisdom and guidance for life. Yet how often we neglect that wisdom and guidance and go it on our own. Fourth, be prepared to defend it. Hopefully you're a little better equipped today to talk about the reliability of the Bible. But don't stop there, okay? I was with the youth group. We, we got together the other night and we were talking about these questions and it was an amazing night. Uh, the, the kids in this church are just incredible from children's all the way up through college. And be, I mean, we just got amazing kids and they were asking great questions. I thought we'd go 20, 30 minutes. That's kind of what I was planning for. <laughs> you know, an hour and 15 minutes, hour and a half later. We're still, it was great. It was a great night. And this is one of the things I left them with. I you know, I, I told them, you're not gonna get it tonight. Just by, just by the questions I just answered, you're, you're gonna get a little bit more information. Okay? But you're not gonna get it all. You're not gonna be fully equipped. You're not gonna be completely prepared. Just like none of you are gonna be completely prepared, even if you listen to every one of these sermons from, from, from Gus and Dan and Kevin and I this, this, this summer. So you've gotta dig into it on your own. You've gotta pursue this a little bit. Keep studying, keep pursuing truth, read the Bible, read books about the Bible. Read books about apologetics. There's amazing resources out there. Our attention spans are getting shorter and shorter, so maybe a 300 page book is a little too much, but a one minute apologetic video on the One Minute Apologist, that's doable. A 20 minute podcast, that's doable. So here are a few resources I would recommend. I already mentioned the first one on the left The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. Great book. One of the best introductions to apologetics that i've read yet really really understandable and and just i think it's it's great it covers a lot of ground in a short time the reason for god is another one of my favorites by timothy keller tim keller is a pastor at at a large church in new york city and they told him his church would never succeed in the neighborhood he went into because it was so secular and it has just exploded in popularity And, and tim keller spends 30, 60, 90 minutes sometimes after his sermons, just answering questions for people. And so he's written books, he's done apologetics videos, he's done all kinds of stuff. He just has a really kind of interesting, folksy, understandable way of explaining this stuff. The subtitle for this book is actually Belief in an Age of Skepticism, so it's very apropos. And then the last one on the right here is GotQuestions.org. This is a website. And there are over 655,000 questions that have been answered on this website. So you can type in almost any question you can think of about our, our faith, other religions, worldviews, the Bible, other books of uh, holy books from other religions, um, other major worldview questions, questions about you know today's political issues. You can type in a question or topic, and you'll probably get at least half a dozen articles about that that are all supported with scripture. Really, really helpful resource here. And lastly, I want to recommend a few questions for you to discuss with friends or your life group, your family, whomever. Okay, we're gonna do this throughout the summer to encourage conversation. And this is how we started Youth Group the other night, was with some of these basic questions. So for example, what is one thing that you learned today about the Bible that gives you more confidence that it is authentic and reliable? What is one thing that you're still unsure about regarding the Bible? What's one thing that maybe still just doesn't quite seem right that you need to figure out and dig into? And then what is the most compelling reason so far for believing that the Bible is God's word and that you should read it and do what it says? What is it that drives you to the Bible? Or what is it that will start driving you to the Bible? So, When someone asks you why you read the Bible, isn't that just a book written by human beings? You don't really think it came from God, do you? You need to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. And like I said, 10 or 12 years ago, I was not prepared. And it's bothered me ever since. And not only will you be able to defend the Bible, but you're going to be able to share it much more confidently. You're going to be able to share that message that the world so desperately needs to hear. Let's pray. Almighty God, we just uh, are so grateful for the word that you have given us, for your revelation. I mean, obviously, we see evidence of you in creation, we see evidence of you around us, in the people around us, in the beauty around us, in the goodness around us. But we also see very specific revelation in your Bible in your word. And we're thankful for that because it's always there to turn to. It's always there to inform us in our walk. It's, it's living and active in it and it hits us differently every single day because you've anticipated every one of our days. So we are so grateful for what you've given us, Lord. Help us to never neglect it. And please forgive us for the times that we have. Lord, I just pray for your blessings on this series and your blessings on our hearts and our minds as we absorb this stuff and learn this stuff. And for people out there that this is brand new, I just pray that it would be a source of encouragement. And that you would continue to draw us to your heart, Lord. And help us, Lord, to just be prepared to share your story, to share our story to defend our faith and to do so with gentleness and respect, in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Where were you high And oh how far I'd scale the valleys If you graced The other side And oh how long Have I chased rivers From lowly seas To where they rise And against the rush Of grace descending From the source of its supply And in the highlands and the heartache You're neither more or less inclined And I would search and stop at nothing You're just not that hard to, to find
4: Your kindness extend the
0: path where your feet rest on the sunrise, sweep the syllabus past. No, oh, how fast would you come running just to shadow me through? For who could dare ascend That mountain That valleyed hill called Calvary For the one I call Good Shepherd Who like a lamb was slain for me And I will praise you I will praise you in the mountains in my way
1: together as we close
0: Oh. Worship
4: your holy name. I worship
0: your
1: holy name. Lord, thanks for this morning. God thank you for Sean's words, that encouragement just of who you are, and just that encouragement to praise you all the more. We're, we're blown away. Our mind is literally blown, thinking all the evidence. Forty authors alone just pointing to you. Pretty awesome. God, thanks for letting us be a part of this family together. God, we pray you'd bless these fathers today. God, as fathers, I pray you'd help us to, to take a step up and, and lead even better this next year, leading our family towards you. And God, we just ask your blessing to be upon Uh, this day and the rest of this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a great week.